Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. That's the text that I'm going to read in just a minute, and it'll be up on the screen behind me, or if you want to follow along in one of the Bibles that are in the chair racks, one of those blue Bibles, then you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I think you'll find it on page uh, 1293, 1293. Now, this may not at first seem like an, seem like an Easter text, um, but it is. And if you want a specifically Easter text, we read from Mark 16 a few minutes ago, and that reminded us when we read at the outset from Mark chapter 16 and the women coming to the tomb on that first Easter morning, it reminded us that what we are talking about was a real historical event. Jesus was really dead. There really was a morning, and there really were these women who went to that tomb, and they really found it empty. But the reason why we're in this letter of First Peter is because it was written by Peter during a time when there were those who needed to be reminded that this was not just an abstract concept, this hope of resurrection, but they needed to be reminded that it was true, that it was a real historical event that had implication for their lives in the midst of the suffering that they were experiencing. See, Peter was writing to Christians who were hurting, He was writing to those who were suffering. They believed in the resurrection. That's what made them Christians. But what would Peter say to instruct them, to encourage them? Well, he he reminds them of the great mercy that God has shown to them in causing them to be born again, he says, to a living hope. Hope, a living hope, a hope that can't be taken away. And where does that hope come from? Well, he tells them at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1. He says that this hope has been given according to God's great mercy, by which he has caused them to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There you go. The hope in this life that we have for now and for eternity is found in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is the good news that guarantees our salvation. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, that's what the end of verse 8 and verse 9 says, that when the resurrection of Jesus takes hold in your life, you believe in Him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The resurrection means that we have a living hope, a hope that can never perish, never spoil, never be taken away, that will never fade, a hope that is secured for our salvation. And that's where we begin this morning. So let me ask you to stand if you're able as I read this text. This is God's Word. So we typically stand when I read it. It's a symbol of respect. And when I'm finished reading, you'll know when I'm finished because I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord. And I'm going to invite you to respond with thanksgiving by saying thanks be to God. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, 
preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So the, the main idea of what I just read is, is given to us in verse 10 when it says, concerning this salvation. It's as if Peter is saying, okay, I just finished telling you that the ultimate goal of your living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the salvation of your souls. This resurrection means something. It is going towards an end. It has, it has a purpose And that purpose is your salvation. And then he says, concerning this salvation. In other words, let's talk a little bit more about this salvation that is provided by the resurrection. So let's do that. It's a pretty simple outline. If you have bulletin, you'll see that I kind of listed it there for you. But there's three main things about the salvation that is ours through Jesus. Three implications of it. One, the prophets predicted it. Two, the angels marvel at it. And three were transformed by it. In other words, if you were to think of those three points, the prophets predicted it. The resurrection and the salvation that comes through it is historical, it's real. The angels marvel at it. In other words, our salvation and the resurrection that that brings it about is amazing and should cause us to be absolutely amazed at what God has done. And third, we're transformed by it. In other words, this, this resurrection that results in the salvation of our souls. It it changes us. It sets us apart and makes us different. Now, before we start, let me acknowledge this presupposition when we talk about salvation. It does sort of presume that you need saving from something and that you recognize your need to be saved from something. And for some of you, you might say, well, that's not hard. I look at my life. I definitely, I definitely need some, some saving. Need, you might say, I, look, just look at me. I'm, I'm a mess. My life is a mess. And if that's, a you, if that's you this morning, well, then good. You're in the right place. I feel that way too sometimes. That's why I'm here too. But for others, you might be saying, well, thanks. I mean, very much. I, I, I like my life pretty much the way that it is. I mean, I'm happy to be here this morning, and I'm glad that I'm here, but you Christians are always trying to save people, and for the most part, I think I'm good. Thank you very much. Thanks for the offer. Now, if you were, if you were here on, on Friday night, I, I told people on Friday night about, um, about Lance Corporal Nick Euphrazio. Uh, Lance Corporal Nick Euphrazio's life was saved by a fellow Marine in 2010, a fellow Marine named William Carpenter. His friends called him Kyle, Kyle Carpenter. When his friend jumped in front of a grenade that would have surely killed him, Euphrazio's life was saved. Now, it's possible that Nick Euphrazio woke up that morning knowing that he might need to be saved that day. For all, he was in in a war zone. He was in a combat unit. It It was a possibility. But in all likelihood, he probably didn't wake up that day and say, today, today is the day that I know that I'll need saving. Most of us are like that. Most of us don't actually think that today's the day we need saving until the, well, until the grenade lands right next to us. If that's you today, then I think you're in the right place too because at some point in your life, that grenade will land. It'll land right next to you and you'll have to figure out at that point 
what it takes for you to be saved. So let's figure it out now. Salvation. First, the prophets predicted it. Look again at verses 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You see what Peter's doing there? He's telling them that the plan has always been for our salvation to be accomplished through the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories of the resurrection. Now look at verse 11. The prophets predicted it. Now that's a pretty core concept to keep in mind when it comes to, to Good Friday and to Easter. The primary message of the prophets in the Old Testament was not that salvation comes through the keeping of the law of God that was given to Moses. Right? There's lots of warnings about obeying God's law. There's lots of consequences for not obeying God's law. But the primary purpose of the prophets was not to establish how you should keep the law and that's how you obtain salvation. No, the primary purpose of the prophets primary purpose of the prophets was to establish and conclusively prove the need for the sacrificial suffering of Jesus and the subsequent glories of His resurrection. The prophets were pointing to that. That's what Peter is saying, and it's what Jesus said too. It's what Jesus talked about too. In Luke chapter 24, you want a resurrection text, here you go, right? It's after His resurrection in Luke chapter 24, and Jesus is walking with a couple of His disciples, and they don't recognize who He is immediately. And, they, and, and, and he, he says, what's wrong? You look, you look kind of down. And they say, haven't you heard what's happened over the last couple of days? <laughs> it's terrible. Our teacher, he's, he, 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 he's, he was killed unjustly. It's awful. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying, guys, guys, none of this should really surprise you. None of this is last minute. None of this is a, a plan B contingency on God's part. It's all, it's all part of the plan. The law of Moses, the words of the prophets, they all pointed to me, to my sufferings, and to the subsequent glories. That's what Peter's saying. And he's saying that we can gain confidence in the salvation that is offered to us because of the testimony given to us in the Bible about the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, the gospel that's referenced in verse 12, the good news of our salvation is defined by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's authenticated, it's proven by the fact that that death and that resurrection of Jesus happened according to the Scriptures. Paul said the same thing. He said it even more, more, more straightforward in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When he wrote to this church in, in Corinth, in the ancient city of Corinth, he wrote to them and he said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I'm telling you what I also heard, and it's the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So how do we know about the salvation that comes to us through the sufferings and the resurrection of Jesus? How do we know? We look at the Scriptures. 
Now, this is actually very practical. Christianity is not primarily a philosophy of living. It is, a, it is an historical report of something that has happened. I think about that. With a philosophy of living, you don't really need the history around the formation of that philosophy. You don't really need that history to be true in order for that philosophy to be helpful because a, with a philosophy, the test is not whether it happened. The test is, do I want to believe this? Does it work? So the search for a philosophy is really a self-driven kind of a kind of a quest, and the test is whether or not it seems practical, whether it seems useful. If it does, well, then keep it. If it doesn't, well, then put it aside. But Christianity is not like that. The starting point is not, do I want to believe this? The starting point is, did this really happen? Because, see, if it didn't happen, then you can just, you can just ditch it right now. Right? There's, no living, there's no living hope for your salvation if it didn't happen. But if it did, if Jesus really did die, if he really did rise again from the dead, then it validates all the claims that he made about himself. And therefore, it validates the claim that he makes on you. I quoted 1 Corinthians 15 a minute ago. Paul admits it straight out. He says, look, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, if the resurrection didn't happen, then you can just forget about that salvation. Faith is, your faith's futile, he says. And we're to be... He says, we're to be most pitied among men. In other words, just pack it in. Because if it's not true, you're a fool. There's a a woman named Rosario um, who back in the 1990s was a tenured English professor at Syracuse uh, University in the Women's Studies Department. And she thought she knew all she needed to know about about Christianity. You know, eh, well-meaning folks perhaps here and there, but in general a bunch of naive, misguided fools. And she didn't have any need, any real interest in reading the Bible, but she decided that she was going to write a book um, about Christians and, you know, sort of, the, sort of her quest against stupid, I think, as she put it. And so for that, because, you know, she's a, she's a professor, she valued the, 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 you know, the, the, the task of research, and so she said, I'm going to read the Bible. And an English professor at that, so, I mean, I've got a text here, I should read it, and she did. She started reading it. She wasn't looking for a philosophy. And to hear her tell the story, she didn't like the philosophy that she found in it anyway. To her and all her backgrounds and her beliefs, the the philosophy of the Bible was the exact opposite of what she wanted. But because she was dedicated, she, she devoted herself to reading it. She wanted to understand for herself what it was about the Bible that had been had deluded so many people. And so she read it. One day she's at her house with a large group of her her friends, and she goes into the kitchen to get something, and one of her friends follows her into the kitchen and, and puts his hand on, on hers and says, Rosaria, I don't know what it is, but something's changing you. You're, you're reading the Bible, and it's, it's changing you, and you need, to, you need to tell me what's going on because I'm worried. I'm worried that we're losing you. And Rosaria sat down with her head spinning, she said, almost nauseous, and she said to her friend, she said, I'm I am. I'm, I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading it a lot. And, and this question just keeps coming back to me. What if it's true? What if it's true? Because we're in big trouble if it's true. This is what Rosaria said later about what she was thinking at the time. She said, I was, I was thinking, do I want to be changed? No. I like my life. I like my house. I like my career. But what if it's, what if it's true? That's the right question. That's the starting point of Christianity. 
right? That's what Peter is trying to tell us is the basis for our salvation, the truth of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Point number one, the prophets predicted it. Now, second, the angels marvel at it. Did you see at the end of verse 12, just this little phrase, these are, he says, things into which angels long to look. Now, it's just a little phrase. It's kind of a throwaway kind of line, but, but that's absolutely stunning. Who are the angels? Anyway, I mean, not, not from like, you know, storybooks or movies or whatever. Well, you know, we don't actually know much about them from the Bible, but what we do know is these, they, they were pretty impressive. Almost always when someone encountered an angel, right, they didn't say, oh, look, it's so cute. You know, like the little cherub. They were afraid. They fell to the ground. These were impressive creatures. These were the ones who surround the throne of God. These were the ones who formed the armies of God. They're powerful. They're smart. And yet here, right, here we, we know that they, that they long to look into the salvation that is provided through the resurrection. Now, this doesn't mean that they're ignorant about it. Isn't it? It's not, they're not struggling with the question, is it true? Or did it really happen? No, they know. They know it's true. They just, they're just marveling at it. They can't, get their, they, they can't get their minds around it. They can't wrap around it. There's something that's just, that's just so amazing that they can't stop staring at it. And the commentators point out that the verb, you know, look into here, it's to gaze with an outstretched neck. Right? That's the sense in which that, that verb is commonly used. I mean, it's like, it's like you're crane, like, whoa. That's what it's like. They're leaning over. They're stretching to see if they can peer into the depths of this salvation and what it means. Now, what are they marveling at? What are these things? Well, it's what we've just been talking about. The sacrificial sufferings of the Son of God on behalf of His people and His triumphant resurrection so that those people can rise again from the dead too. That's what they're looking at. And what makes it so amazing to look at is it's just... It, it completely upends everything that we would think about what would be necessary in order for, for us to be able to, to live again. It makes, it makes them say, what is it about this that it's grace? That's what they're marveling at. That's what the prophets spoke of in verse 10, the grace that was to be yours. That's what it says. That's what the angels are continually longing to more fully grasp. can put it, but here's a good shorthand general definition. People use the word all the time. What's grace? Well, here's what grace is. Grace represents an undeserved gift that comes at a significant cost to the giver. An undeserved gift that comes at a significant cost to the giver. Now, let me illustrate it with a somewhat humorous story, but it makes the, it makes the point in the sense of like, if this is grace, well, then imagine how much more God's grace is. It goes like this. A few years ago, at a fancy Washington dinner party, uh, White House advisor Val Valerie Jarrett uh, was seated at a table when out of the corner of her eye, she, she caught the pant leg of someone who was standing next to her. And they looked like very crisp, you know, well-pressed, uniform kind of tight uh, type pants. And she, without looking, you know, assumed that the man was a, you know, was a waiter. And she said, could you, um, could you get me a glass of wine? 
Uh, the only problem is, is that her assumption was very wrong because the man who was standing next to her was, in fact, four-star General Peter Chiarelli, second highest ranking officer in the U.S. Army. Now, she was, of course, mortified as soon as, as, soon as she found out her mistake. What's interesting, though, is, is how Chiarelli reacted. Now, think about it for a second, right? In, the, in a split second, these are his options. He could have responded by putting the woman in her place. He didn't have to do it rudely. He didn't have to be mean about it, but just, just reminding her, right? Pointing out to this political appointee that he was, in fact, not a waiter, but a highly decorated military commander, and the next time maybe she should just, you know, maybe look up and see the medals on his chest, right? That would have been perfectly just for him to point that out. Now, second, he could have, he could have, if you think about it, accepted her apology and just moved on, right? He didn't need to, didn't need to point anything out. Maybe he could have just said, you know, she, she recognized her mistake. She said she was sorry. He could have said, let's just forget about it. Just forget about it. Move on. No problem at all, right? Let's find you a waiter, right? That would have been a nice thing to do. That's perhaps what we think of as the gracious thing to do, but grace, grace is better than that. Grace is so much better than just simply like, no harm, no foul, let's move on. What General Chiarelli did instead was turn around, go over to the bar, and get this woman a glass of wine. He didn't have to do it. It was clearly beneath his, his role. It cost him dignity to do that. That's grace. Now, on a much greater scale, take that trivial example and think about it in light of what Jesus has done for us, right? As, as the uniform reveals the identity of the general, the scriptures we just finished talking about reveal the identity of Jesus, and yet we mistake him entirely. We assume that we're the one in charge, and he's just the waiter there getting us what we need. We do the exact same thing, Except in his case, the stakes are significantly higher. It's not just a social faux pas. <laughs> in his case, the entirely, uh, entirely appropriate and just response is his displeasure, his wrath, in fact. Because we're not just, mis just asking him a misplaced question by accident. We're actually commanding him around with the arrogant assumption that we're God and that he's not. We're actually rebelling against his authority, the authority of the of the commander. It's, it's insubordination against the ultimate general. And yet because of grace, we don't get his displeasure. And he doesn't just say, okay, no harm, no foul, try again. We get his active pleasure. We get his undeserved blessing, the exact opposite of what we're owed. And the cost of Jesus is, is so much greater than just simply a little bit of dignity and what he gives us is far greater than just a glass of wine. See, for, for us, Jesus did what General Chiarelli didn't do, what, general, what the general couldn't do. The general went and poured the woman a glass of wine, but Jesus, if you think about it in this sense, Jesus actually relinquished his rank for us. He gave us his medals. That's what we get in the resurrection. He makes us, <laughs> he makes us like him. See, at some level, I think we all get that grace is not a gift from someone who owes us something. That's just paying off a debt. That's not grace. But neither is grace a gift from, something, a gift from someone who owes you nothing, like a secret Santa. That's a nice surprise, a secret Santa gift. But, but honestly, it's not something that the angels would marvel at. Grace is actually a gift from someone not who owes you nothing, but who owes you the opposite. 
doesn't owe you nothing, but who by all rights owes you displeasure, but instead gives you blessing. Now, that's amazing. And what makes that amazing, what makes that something to marvel at, is the fact that it flies in the face of everything that makes sense according to the world's rules. Right? You hear people talk about, about karma, right? Karma is not amazing. It's very logical. It makes, it makes logical sense. You do something bad, you get something bad back. You do something good, you get paid back something good. That's karma, but there's nothing amazing there. There's nothing the angels couldn't figure out. No one's going to be singing amazing karma, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wretches aren't saved by karma. They're only saved by grace. Kyle Carpenter's son, uh, mom, William Carpenter, the one who threw himself on the grenade, his mom did not want him to be a Marine. She remembers the conversation that she had with him when he was joining up. And she distinctly remembers him saying to her, Mom, if I don't do this, it will be someone else's son. Grace tells us that 2,000 years ago, someone else's son, God's son, went to Calvary and died in your place. So that when you die, you might live. Now let me ask you a question then before we move on. Do you marvel at that? Do you look at what Jesus has done and marvel at it like the angels? If you're a Christian, do you just sit back and consider how amazing that is? Do you say, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Because that is the essential bridge, being amazed at what Jesus has done. That is the bridge that takes us from point one, it's true, to point three, it changes us. Because you may know point one, the facts. It's true, it happened, got it. But if you don't, number two, marvel at it, like the angels, then you'll never, point three, be transformed by it. Right? This is what we know about the living hope of salvation that comes through the resurrection of Jesus. We know that the prophets predicted it. We know that the angels marvel at it. Finally, Peter tells us, it will transform us. The truth and the marvel of salvation through the resurrection of Jesus changes us. That's why Peter shifts now to application. He says in verse 13, Therefore, in other words, in light of what has happened, do these things. And he climaxes in verse 16 with the quote from the command of the Old Testament, the command of God from Leviticus, be holy because I'm holy. Now let's admit for a second here, you hear that phrase, we've got a significant problem, PR problem with the word holy. Be honest, right? Ask the average person whether they would want their friends to describe them as holy, right? And they'd probably squirm and say, I mean, that's not a bad, I mean, isn't there a better word? I mean, it's not that I'd want to be bad or anything, but maybe like, I don't know, how about good? Can you just call me good? Good's good. I like to be good. Nice. Maybe call me nice. But please don't, don't call me holy. Why not? Because holy makes you think of someone you know, doesn't it? Right? Someone who thinks that they're, that they're better than you. Right? Someone who thinks that they're, that they're holier than thou. That's normally when we hear the word holy. That's, that's normally what we think. Holier than thou. It makes you think of someone who's inaccessible. Someone who's condescending, self-righteous. No one wants to be called any of those names. So let's, we just need to make sure we understand this because if God is saying, I want you to be holy, what does that mean? Peter's saying pretty clearly that the living hope of salvation that comes through the resurrection of Jesus is meant to transform us into someone who is holy. 
right? So what do we know about holy? Well, first, we know God's holy. Understand that we're holy. I guess we have to start there. That's what it says, verse 15, just as he who called you is holy, so God's holy. And that doesn't just mean that God obeys the rules. I mean, they're his rules, of course. So, I mean, you know, he's completely consistent with his character. God's holiness, though, is a lot more than that. The biblical meaning of the word holy is really focused on the idea of separateness. Right, the Greek in the New Testament, the Hebrew in the Old Testament, both have this idea of being sort of cut out or set apart when the word holy is, is used. And when it comes to God, it means that we have a God who is, who is perfectly separate, perfectly distinct. In other words, in a class by himself. Absolutely unique. Because God is holy, it means that he's completely separate from and superior to the false gods of the world. Think about that for a second. All those things that we run after instead, all of those things that we that we think are more important, that drive most of the choices and most of the decisions in our lives. How we're going to do in school, how we're going to do at the next game, how our neighbors are going to view us, what kind of car we drive, what kind of house we live in, all the things that we normally think of. God's holiness means that he is far separate and far superior to any of those things. It also means that he's far, that, that he's complete, that he's far superior to his creation. The world and the and, and, and the world in which we live and the beauty of it, and we rejoice at it, the flowers, the, the sunshine, all of those things. But those things are there to declare His handiwork. They are not God. It means that He is superior and that He's separate from humanity. We are made in His image, but we are not God. Now, there's more than can be said, but that's the idea. What, so what does it mean then for us to be holy just as God is holy? Well, it doesn't mean that we're set apart in the same way that God is, but it does mean that we're set apart. People or things that are holy have been set apart, they've been cut out, set aside for a specific use, made for a particular purpose, cut out from something for, for a reason. When I find a, a, a news story or an article or something that I find interesting, I have a program on my computer that I use to clip it, right? to take it out of the vast world of information that's, that's out there and set it aside for future use. That's, that's the sense of holy. Perhaps another way we can think about the command to be holy is by looking at the negative command of verse 14, and that's what not to be. Verse 14 says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, we know that this is linked to verse 15 because verse 15 starts with, um, because verse 15 says, but instead of doing that, instead of being conformed to, the, to your former passions, be holy. So holiness is the opposite then of being conformed to your passions. Now, I want you to notice this. That word for passions it's a Greek word, epithumia, and it means, it, does, it doesn't necessarily refer to something that's inherently bad. It's just a desire. The problem is, and perhaps why some of the translators like to add the adjective evil in front of it, in, in certain translations, evil passions or evil desires. The problem is, when our desires, even for a good thing, become inordinate, when they become that when they become too much, a desire for something beyond its appropriate value, when, when our lives begin to conform to it rather than to God, well, then it becomes a problem. That's what it means to conform to. to it means to take the shape of, to be molded by. And what Peter's saying here is there is no such thing in this world as a nonconformist. The God you follow, the desire you serve, it leaves an impression, and over time, you begin to look like it. You begin to be molded by it, to be shaped by it. You take its shape. Peter's saying there's no neutral ground. Everyone chooses a God. It isn't a question as to whether we'll conform, 
The question is to which God will conform. So we begin to see that holiness is more than just simple moral behavior, which some of you kind of say, I wasn't very good at moral behavior anyway, so good. I'm glad, I'm glad about that. No, not good. Right, moral behavior is, is, is important, but the standard is actually significantly higher than that. Moral behavior is a derivative. It's a product of holiness, not the standard of holiness. Right, the character of, of holiness that everyone hates, that's what happens when we reverse it, when we try to, when we try to put the moral behavior on top. Holiness primarily has to do with an entire life being wholly set apart to God. It kind of goes like the words of this old hymn that we sometimes sing. Take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my will and make it Thine, it shall be no longer mind. That's holiness. Everything in our lives, what we do with our free time, how we use our skills and our talents, how we spend our money, all of our desires for food, for sexual gratification, for whatever, all of it conformed under the authority of the suffering and the resurrected Jesus, whose gracious work has secured your salvation. Now, what could transform your way, your, your life in such a way that you would live like that? that you would live for someone like that. The only thing that can transform someone like that is to encounter the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Remember Lance Corporal William Carpenter. His body was, his body was completely torn apart by that enemy grenade. When he arrived at Camp Bastian, the nearest medical outpost in Afghanistan from where he was injured. He was labeled PEA, patient expired on arrival. That's what the disciples would have said about Jesus, and it would have been true. When Jesus was taken down from the cross, he had expired. In fact, the Bible uses that literal phrase. He breathed his last. He expired. His breath had left him. The thing is, that's Corporal Kyle Carpenter was still alive. His wounds were horrific. He was declared dead actually on multiple occasions. But to hear him say it, the enemy killed me, I came back. Jesus would have said the same thing. The last enemy to be defeated, Paul says, is death. That's the enemy that Jesus faced down in his crucifixion. The enemy killed him, but he came back. Now to be very clear, that does not make Lance Corporal William Carpenter, Jesus. <laughs> All right, there's a sense of which, a sense in which, of course, his actions were were sacrificial, like Jesus. That's a, that's why I tell the story. But, but here's the thing, and here's the very critical, important thing for all of us. William Kyle Carpenter will die again. Nick Euphrazio, he was saved, but he was saved an extremely wounded man and continues to suffer with the significant injuries of that day. He will continue to suffer, and he too will die. Our only hope is that death has been defeated. See, all of us will die, and all of us need something to fill the, 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 the hole of despair that comes with that realization. You've heard of Bono, the lead singer for the rock group U2. Bono's mother died when he was 14 
literally at the funeral of his grandfather. As the casket was being lowered into the ground, his mother had an aneurysm and died right there. He says that left a hole in him that could be filled, he said, only by the love of God. He describes in an interview when he went to Jerusalem and visited Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull where Jesus died. And he said it hit him at that moment and he said to himself, so this is where, this is where death died. And look, I don't know all about Bono's theology, but he's absolutely right. That's exactly where it happened. That's where death died because Jesus killed it. They thought that death had killed him, but they were wrong. He came back. And that's the implication of Easter and the resurrection. If Jesus really did die and he really did rise, then that's amazing and it changes us and we'll never be the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the historical truth of the resurrection and for what that means for us as we consider our lives. Lord, for the skeptical and the curious, open their eyes to the reality of who you are and what you've done. And for those of us tempted to view another Easter with common complacency, renew in us an amazement at the life-changing assurance that is ours through the risen Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.